Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is a special episode for you. Tough talks from the top. Too often, I hear from those working in, quote, big corporates, how I can't say that. My interest is helping listeners to learn from those who've served in senior most executive positions, how they were able to stay true to themselves, say what needed to be said, and thrive in big corporate settings. I'm charged up to welcome back someone who's a world-class business operator over a 30-year career. He succeeded in running both traditional offline financial services and highly technical fintech enterprises. As president of Citibank Online, he led a turnaround of Citi's two U.S. online businesses, then ranked number nine and number 17 to create the U.S.'s number one ranked online bank. Goldman Sachs recognized his turnaround as why Citibank would succeed online in the post-John Reed era. He also led Citi's global online banking technology group operating in 53 countries. Over at American Express, he influenced the U.S. Postal Service to accept credit cards for the very first time and went on to found and general manage Amex's government services division. At the same time, he served as chief compliance officer of more than a $100 billion division that managed relationships with Amex merchants. And after his corporate career, he went on to New Heights, which we'll hear more about, including founded his financial services and fintech management consultancy and investment firm. He's living the dream coaching CEOs, advising small companies in their mergers and acquisitions and serving on numerous boards. He is an extraordinary friend and business advisor to me. I'm proud to welcome back to the show, Mark Parcells. Mark, welcome back to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly. It's great to be back. Good to see you. Yep. Great to hear your voice. And uh, I really appreciate the generosity of your time as always. And um, you had more, way more than your fair share of high stakes situations. Um, And especially as one is coming up the ranks in big companies, I've seen how tempting and easier it is for people to, shall we say, take the party line, not go out on a limb. And, you know, I'm not we're not arguing again that anyone does anything ridiculous, but at the same time to to be true to yourself, take some courage and it takes some judgment. So as you look back, you know, could you just share early situations where you may have witnessed this behavior um, or perhaps you were fortunate you had examples of a leader who really took unpopular stands and that helped you know that it was okay to do what you thought was right? Well, sure, there's there were numerous situations that I experienced, but, you know, the, I, I guess the, the overall observation that I'd like to share with your listeners is to be aware of the emperor's new clothes syndrome. There's too many corporations and I've worked in a number of them, very large uh, corporations where it was everybody decided the right decision was whatever the leader said. So whatever the CEO said, whatever the department head said, 
even if they thought it was the dumbest idea, they would say, oh, it's a great idea. It's kind of like the, you know, the parable of the emperor's new clothes where the emperor's walking down, you know, the street with no clothes on. And uh, he's been swindled by the guy who allegedly made the clothes and told everybody that you're not intelligent uh, and not sophisticated if you can't see the clothes. So everybody pretended that they could see the clothes. And then one little boy, you know, uh, who was standing on the side is said, the emperor has no, no clothes. And everybody realized he really doesn't have clothes and the emperor was quite embarrassed. So the point of that is, is the leader's ideas are not always good ones. The jokes the leader tells are not always funny. And it's really important for the leader to understand that. But it's more important for the people who work in those types of organizations to be authentic, to be real, and to respectfully call out when they know that an idea, or at least it really occurs to them that an idea is a bad idea, um, and maybe they need to learn more. So, you know, you need to, they need to be courageous enough to say, it occurs to me that that this idea doesn't really seem to make sense for reasons A, B, and C. Can you explain it to me? And if it really is a bad idea, then it's going to be impossible for others to explain it. And, and you will be able to move on instead of everybody suffering in this organization. So I'll stop there for a second. I can give you some examples, but I just... You know, that's kind of my overall thinking after 35 years of working in organizations about this specific issue uh, from a macro level. Yeah, I know. I love the overarching. And absolutely, I think listeners would love to hear some examples. And, you know, I, I would just share one of my own. And I remember very clearly being, you know, relatively early on at Cisco. And we heard so-and-so said to do such and such, right? And so I looked at the team and I said, does that make sense? You know, and then I said, I don't think so-and-so wants us to do something stupid. You know, and I wasn't being, you know, mean to anyone, but I, and I was saying that kind of in a way to say, I think so-and-so trusts us to use our brains because we're paid for our brains here and would not want us to do something that we don't think is the right thing to do. And I know for our listeners that may seem kind of basic, but that can be an easy way to kind of break the ice a little bit and say, Hey, wait a second. You know, the, we don't think that they want us to do wrong things, right? Like that can't be what they wake up in the morning thinking. So empower ourselves to do the right thing. But Mark, go ahead, share with us some examples. Well, so there's, I, I can think of a couple examples from my corporate career. One was at American Express. And, you know, when I was at American Express, I was fortunate enough to work on the launch of their first credit card, the Optima card in New York. And because I did two MBAs at two different schools, one in Europe and one in the United States, I had a second summer internship in Europe and I got to be on the launch team um, in Europe, in London as well. So that was uh, a very, uh, very interesting time. And so, but when I, when I came back, I realized 
uh, instead of being one of 10 people on the launch team, now there's 300 people. And I said, okay, I'm not a very good employee in a big organization where I write a, a presentation and 10 different people have to edit it, where before I gave it right to the head of the department. So I, I searched for other divisions which weren't doing well. And uh, I found the division called the Take One Division, where it was there used to be credit card applications out on the counter of Saks Fifth Avenue, all through the airports and everything. And but the the management was thinking of shutting down that division because the num they got lots of applications, but they didn't get um, good approval rates. And the reason is, is these people weren't pre-approved. So you got people really probably shouldn't be a credit card applying for credit cards. So instead of shutting it down, I went to that division and I worked with a really great guy, Dave Tomlinson. And we said, well, look, we have every pre-approved name in the United States. So because we send mailers out every month. And I said, why don't you send me out to Phoenix and where our credit people were. I spent two weeks out there and we figured out how to use our pre-approved list for these unsolicited group. And everybody had said, this is a really stupid idea. Like this channel is ineffective, it doesn't work, but it actually was a great point of sale marketing uh, approach. So the long story short is we were able to take the application down from 67 fields the applicant had to fill out to four. And because basically you just had to put in your name, your social security number, we ran you up against our pre-approved list and we knew if you were credit worthy or not. So all of a sudden our application volume shot up like 10 times, our revenue shot up from that, um, that division and we were able to really revamp and make it really strong, both um, point of sale uh, advertising uh, medium, as well as a very profitable channel. So again, it was one example of going against conventional wisdom. You know, we can't get good um, new customers through this channel, but with a little bit of thinking with a couple of us, uh, that was out of the box and against the corporate um, heuristic, you know, the corporate, uh, you know, rule of thumb is you don't get good applicants from there. We came up with a very simple and easy solution um, that really turned that around. So there's one. So and this is amazing. So we're, we're, before we get to the second one, so this sounds, oh, so great. Oh, I had this idea. No one thought it was an idea. They thought it was a bad idea, in fact, but I ran with it and I, here I am a hero. But so go through this because I think for a lot of folks, if they're hearing, oh my God, Mark, this is a dumb idea. Why would we do this? They would just be like, well, you know, maybe it's not a good idea. How do you think it is that you kind of persevered? How did you create the openings? Yeah, yeah go over to Phoenix, check it out for two weeks. I mean, seriously, I mean, that's that there's some magic in that. Yeah. So so again, it, it's usually a couple people who are willing to trust their own judgment and that just think with common sense. And so the guy I worked with at the time, this guy, Dave, um, 
he and I just really sat in his office and we brainstormed, what can we do? And it wasn't rocket science, although a lot of things, a lot of, you know, it's deceiving for people to go to business school. You say, oh, come on, that's, that's a no brainer. Anybody would have decided that. What people don't appreciate is how strong the corporate group think is, you know, uh, so when the group think is very strong, people think you are kind of crazy to be going against the corporate group thing. So we just got in a room and we said, okay, well, how do we get an approval rate close to what we have for people who are pre-approved? So we bought every credit bureau every month on every credit worthy person in the United States. So we had lists of over a hundred million qualified people. So we sat around and it literally took us half an hour. And we're like, okay, I guess the common sense no brainer thing is we know who credit worthy people are. Let's put out the application and all we'll have to do, we're gonna have to work with credit guys because they were in a group think mode. That's why I went out there. And you know, we went out and said, look, why is it any different if Molly Chang fills out 67 fields versus four, if all we're going to do is check her social security number against the list? And if her name and social security number match the list, why is it any different approving her there than it is if we sent her a mailing and ask her to sign her name and send it back. And so really the two weeks took me a week to convince them that this was kind of a no-brainer because, because remember the corporate thing was, it's not a no-brainer, it's impossible. And then the second week was, how do we do this? How do we set up a process? And again, you know, I wasn't an ops management guy, but it's really as simple as the person mails in the application, you open it up. If they put their name, their social security number, you know, uh, address and signed it, you run it up against the list. If Molly's on the list, she's approved. If Molly's not on the list, she's not. It's as simple as that. There's no other, it's the easiest thing in the world. So that's, you know, I hate to say it, there's no magic. It's just using common sense and finding someone else who's willing to use common sense and together pushing it through. I love it. I love it. And before we go to the next example, I do want to go back because this is not a minor thing, this Optima card when you launched it, you know, entrepreneurial, small crew, working really nimbly. And then, you know, so you go there, you come back to corporate and now there's order of magnitude, more people. Just help with people, because this is a very important thing, is understanding what each of us needs to thrive. So talk to us about, was it just so obvious to you, like, I cannot be like a, a small cog on this wheel? And 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 how did you, you know, navigate that situation? Because that's not, that's not uncomplex. <laughs> yeah, so, so look, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, but... My grandmother, who is a CEO of a nursing home chain, my dad, who is CEO of a couple of his own companies, you know, always said, 
don't just start by, you know, going to school and going out and start your own thing. Get training and get training with the best company you can. Get, you know, get some, uh, get some pedigree. And so I was an art entrepreneur at heart and it was great to come into my first internship and be placed in this group that had eight people in it. And, you know, they were all very senior and I'm, that I'm the little intern and I developed the entire communication plan myself. I did, I developed it, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a, you know, summer intern from Cornell for my, uh, you know, MBA program. And, uh, but, you know, I got some guidance, but I just wrote one deck and I presented it to the president of the division. Uh, we made a couple tweaks. It was proved. I got to launch that. I developed the cash uh, access strategy. We launched that. And then in my next internship, we only had four people in London and I did everything. I was like really doing, uh, you know, uh, uh, soup to nuts, everything you needed to do, communication plans, acquisition plans. So then when you can imagine coming back and now in a group with 350 people and I would write a deck about some small piece of the business and literally it would have to go through seven people before it got to the same uh, uh, president of the division who I was writing decks for and get, just handing it to them. And Interestingly, by the time it got to the last editor, they would edit it back to how I started because they knew how this guy liked it. And guess what? I did too. So, uh, because I had worked for him uh, <laughs> at first. So, um, so really, you know, kind of what, uh, what I realized there that a person with an entrepreneurial heart, you can really thrive in the right corporation, but it's hard to thrive in when you're in the hottest place and you're on the lowest point of the totem pole. So I personally don't have the patience for that. And that's why I picked myself up. And if you think Winnie the Pooh and the different characters, it was kind of like going to the other division. The, you know, I love the guy who ran it, but it was kind of like Eeyore. Um, you know, and Eeyore was the, the kind of shy, slow donkey. And he's like, why do you want to come here? And I'm like, I want to come here because I see opportunity. And um, so I don't want to over talk, but that's, you know, that was kind of some of the thinking of why I left that division, why I loved it in the beginning. And uh, some people are really good um, followers. I, I'm just going to come right out. I'm not, I'm not a really good employee. <laughs> I'm just, I don't love following as much as I like being part of leadership teams or solution teams. So I don't need to be running it as long as I'm part of the solution team. But if I'm just, you know, kind of, I have one piece of how to build a widget and I'm not allowed to think outside of that, I don't do too well. Yeah, that's so great for everyone, for listeners. Just know what's right for you. Some of us are very you know, narrow and deep, and we just love to be diving in and other folks see, you know, bigger picture, you're definitely someone who can synthesize and connect dots. And so it's not a good or bad 
or right or wrong, but just getting to know yourself. And that's really the opportunity of one's career. And, um, and I, and I just think that's, that's one of the greatest things about your journey, Mark, is just like you're weaved in and out and, you know, learning it's a, it's a great learning journey. So for a lot of folks who are worried about what am I supposed to do? You know, it's, it's not, a static thing and you do something and it can be good for you and you learn some things, you learn some things you don't like, and then you move on. And so think of it as really, you know, it's the process part, not the end state. Um, okay. Uh, let's go back to, to this. I just want to say, I'm really thankful of the people who love to go narrow and deep because corporations wouldn't work without those people. And I, I just have to say, I am not, I don't have talent in that department. And I, uh, for you know, having run companies for many years, I am most thankful for those people because I love to hire people that have strengths where I don't. So I totally agree with you. Um, I would not recommend everybody follow what I did. <laughs> I love that. And I want to just call out also for the leader folks, and you can see it, you can hear it. And Mark, when you're grounded in yourself and you can, you can really acknowledge and recognize others, that's such a win. And, and people feel, they genuinely feel that appreciation. And it seems like such a little thing, but it shows that you know what you're good at. And you also own like, hey, I'm really, in fact, I'm horrible at this. And because you're great at it, it's just, that's why we all need each other. And, and I think that that, you know, you still have levels, you know, hierarchy and organizations, but we're all equal as human beings. And just, just know that when you can appreciate your fellow employee in ways big and small, it's really, really meaningful. Um, okay, let's go back. We had that one example, uh, any another example of um, uh, going against the grain, um, overcoming the group think. Well, I guess um, when I was at Citigroup, um, you know, I was hired into the global online online team that reported into co-CEO John Reed. And when I was on the train on Amtrak coming up from Wilmington, Delaware, where I lived at the time, um, I heard that he resigned that day. (laughs) Uh, So I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. And so uh, over the next few days, I ended up talking to the remaining leadership under Sandy Weil and his leadership team. And you know, I think they realized I'm not necessarily part of what they perceived as the problem. And by the way, John Reed was one of the most brilliant, if not the most brilliant bank executive that's ever lived. He went to MIT and he is responsible for the ATM when he first uh, came in and he came up with the concept of banking with a machine, the US groupthink was that's ridiculous. Who would ever do business with a machine? Um, who would ever do banking with a machine? So John <laughs> Reed um, goes down, should go down in the annals of the most innovative uh, technology thinkers of his day. Um, so I was very excited to work with him, but I didn't get a chance to. And so then um, I, I uh, got to step in and, um, you know, that uh, I, I worked to re, um, re uh, deploy 63 businesses he had created out in Santa Monica. They were all online businesses, but they were all independent. And the line businesses had no talent, uh, no technology talent. 
and the 63 business had it all, but they weren't doing anything to grow the business. So there the thinking was, oh, well, we, you know, we don't want to work with line guys. And so I had to convince them that they were shareholders and that the businesses they were working on while great and neat projects, none of them were making any money. And they were all going to get shut down under the new management. And so they had a choice. Do you want to go and make these line businesses? And we were the largest by asset bank in the world at the time, 450,000 employees. Do you want to go make these businesses the best technologically supported businesses in the world and be part of the solution? Or do you want to be part of the problem? And after holding multiple meetings and just being super honest with them and letting people uh, vent in meetings saying, this is nuts. You know, those guys don't understand technology. Why would we ever want to do this? And, you know, just came back is, well, the reason is, is because those guys don't understand technology and you do. And the reason is you're employed by this institution and they need you, Um, you know. So we ended up getting there uh, through um, we deployed 98 percent of the people in those businesses. Uh, A few thousand people uh, went into all of the line businesses and we really uh, got those uh, turned around. And then if it's okay, I'll I'll give you a more specific example with the online bank. Oh, please, please keep going. You're on a roll. Okay, so one of the things, one of the strategies I developed was, you know, we had these two online banks. One was called City FI. It was ranked number 17 in the Gomez banking, online banking rankings, which is the, you know, you had to be ranked high in that. And then we had another one, City uh direct access, uh, which was ranked um, number nine. And I looked at these things and direct access was built. The back end was our, uh, was our worldwide proprietary ATM system. It was the best, most secure, robust technological financial, uh, proprietary financial system in the world at the time. And the city FI, which was online only, it was on 17 different vendors who pieced it together. And I said, well, you know, it seems like the obvious thing is you put the broad vision front end, that was a uh, technology vendor at the time, on top of the back end of direct access, and that that would um, create a phenomenal bank, but that would mean we'd have to fire 16 vendors. We'd have to shut down both banks and start a new one. And um, so both organizations were really against that in the beginning. And uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, you know, actually do it and do this myself. I was just recommending the strategy because there was CEO of each one, but both CEOs ended up getting fired and I got appointed to be the CEO <laughs> to run it. Um, uh, and by the way, both CEOs thanked me because they had really big packages that they hated 
working under the new regime. Um, so, um, so we we went in, and I won't worry with all the details other than um, there is an MIT case that's written about it. Um, the, about the turnaround, we did it in 90 days. We put both these businesses together. Uh, but the biggest issue, we were under a lot of pressure as a bank to get one of our online banks into the top three. And my marketing team said, the way we do it is we have to have single sign-on for our customers. So remember, at this time, we owned Solomon Smith Barney. We owned Travelers Insurance. We owned a private bank. We owned, we had credit cards. We had uh, uh, the commercial bank. We had the retail bank. And so we said, all we have to do is if we give Molly Chang an ability to sign into all of those accounts in one place, which nobody offered at that time, then my team was very confident we could make not only the top 10, but maybe the top three. So we approached all the other divisions and the other divisions said, we don't want you talking to our customer. So the private, you know, like, I'm just, I'm not picking on the private bank because I don't remember it was them. But they said, well, Molly Chang's our customer. We don't want you talking to them. And we tried to say, well, Molly Chang is Molly Chang. <laughs> if she's our customer, she's your customer. So why don't we just let them access both accounts through one sign-on and make Molly's life easier? But we had a lot of pushback. So in our monthly meeting with Sandy, and I'm about to wrap the story up, um, we had gotten hard nose from a number of major groups that they would not let us tie into their systems, but technologically, we could do it in 48 hours. So I had to get up and present in front of all the CEOs and Sandy Weil and Bob Rubin, our co-executive chairman, who was former Secretary of Treasury under Clinton. And, uh, you know, he said, well, what's it going to take to get to, to be that top bank? And I said, well, the, the, the magic grail or the holy grail is, is doing single sign-on. And he said, well, how long will it take to do? So, and I said, well, I could have it, you know, on Monday, it was like Thursday, but um, I don't think organizationally we're quite there yet. And he was like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, some of the groups are not quite comfortable with it yet and we're working on it and, you know, I think we'll get there. And he was like, well, we don't have time to get there. So he looked around the room. He said, which of you guys have a problem letting our, a customer sign into each one of your accounts through one interface? Looked around the room and nobody spoke. And so he said, all right, um, then that means you're, you've got the green light. Go do it. Now, I knew very specifically others were really against it, but he was specifically asking me, you know, the bank really needed for its shareholders for, for you know, to, uh, to recover from when John Reed left. It needed a big win. And I wasn't going to go with the corporate groupthink, which is you guys are going to screw up our customers. I was going to do what I thought was right and just tell them the problem. But I said we'd work it out. But he actually solved it right there. And the end of the story is we launched... And within five weeks, we were number one by in Forbes, number one in Gomez. Um, we were the number one uh, online bank in the United States. I am the biggest smile on my face. I 
Love it. And to connect the dots for listeners. So Mark's just, I call this being transparent. You ask a question, you're being transparent. And I love, you know, okay, we're going to get there. There was no judgment in it. The fact of the matter is it is doable in, you know, 48 hours and here's what it takes. And that um, ability to, to just put the information out there. Um, yes. Some people I'm sure I'm just going to assume like we're very unhappy, but you were there to serve the whole. This was the right thing for the bank, right? So maybe some individual pain potentially, but at the end, it's a bigger win for all. And folks, when you are one who is really serving the whole and it's clear that you're serving the whole, it's pretty defensible, right? It's really hard for someone to slam you. What do you mean? You're trying to help the whole company? I'm like, yeah. And so I just want to encourage folks that, you know, stay high. Uh, I love your lightness about it. I'm sure it probably was a little bit edgy at the time, um, but you, you get to a great outcome. You know, Mark, you've worked with, you know, and you have, you know, I love you for this. You're just so, you're very genuine. You're very down to earth. And you've worked with a lot of big egos. And I'm really curious how, you know, when you spot them and how you um, have really definitely worked, you know, in spaces where there's folks who are are very high profile, uh, very strong opinions. So what do you think some of your um, success factors have been? Um, well, I, I think again, coming back to, it's really important to be, you know, genuine, um, be respectful and kind to even these big ego people. Um, and what I found is to the extent that I could present what is going to be best for our customers, but do it in a way that made them feel like it was kind of their idea and um yeah because i never i i couldn't care less for getting credit for anything what i care about is solving a problem and getting it done effectively and so you know what i do is i really listen to the other party number one number two i try to share thoughts um that will lead them to the obvious conclusion that may not have been where they were going, but I, I, you kind of throw them a couple bones like, well, you know, if you allowed a single sign on, your customer will be happy. It's not our customer, but Molly, your customer, she's gonna be thrilled that you have made it possible for her life to be a little easier. And then you, you know, the other party, you know, the ego person says, well, why don't we do the single sign? I I think it's a good idea for our customers. You know, I would typically say, what a great idea. (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, even when we did the turnaround and I had to get our groups together, you know, the two groups who didn't like each other within the bank, I didn't go in and just say, here's what the solution is. You know, we're going to put the front end of one bank on the back end of another because I knew they knew a lot more than me. They were smarter than I was, especially about the bank. And I knew if forced to, they would come to the same conclusion. I just had them um, storm, form, and norm over a one-week period where I put both management teams in a 
conference room and didn't let anybody check their blackberries because it's back in blackberry time. Oh, and you know, they can only take a half an hour break out of each day. And they had to stay there until we uh, storm formed and normed and came up the solution. And by the end of the week, they came up with the exact same solution that the hypothesis was, but they had a lot more intelligent meat, meat and potatoes to it because they knew the business better than I did. I love it. A few highlights uh, and this notion of credit, right? And when you're grounded in yourself, you're not worried about having the light shine on you. It's It can be very obvious, you know, that you were there enabling it. Um, if you can be the player where good things happen, you know, on the ice when you're there, people take note. The curiosity factor. So you heard Mark asking questions. How do you ask questions, guide people to be thinking about it? I mean, the, the disconnects are often that people aren't thinking about it the way that perhaps you'd like them to. How can you ask them the questions that guide them there versus tell them that they're not thinking it the right way, which is typically not uh, a success uh, strategy. And then this is the, how is it a win for them? Putting ourselves in other people's shoes because they got stuff they got to do, right? So how do they look like a hero? How can this be something that helps them, their customers and them? And by that, by doing so, you've created a driver for change, right? Just because something could be better doesn't mean people will do it. You need to give them a way that they want to go get it, go after it. Um, so kudos, Mark, for um, for that. You know, I, I want to segue here because you, you know, I know you, you're super approachable, but for all leaders, it can be uh, challenging to continually encourage folks to give you the feedback that you really need to hear because we all are on a growth journey. So I'm just wondering how, if you had any particular ways that you thought were effective to, you know, make it clear that you really wanted and needed to get, you know, all, all, all kinds of, um, of input to help you grow. Yeah. Well, I, I have a couple of thoughts. One is, I, I just want to say, I, I, um, to your audience, especially those who are earlier in their career and kind of starting out, be really careful about um, interpreting signals from a leader like a CEO or a division president. I'll just give one quick example. I was uh, going to have to present to the board of Citigroup and I got in the elevator. There were probably 30 people in the elevator and my superstar uh, uh, intern um, or, or actually, sorry, she wasn't an intern. She had just started. I was, she'd been there three months in my strategic planning group. I loved her. She was the most competent person. I could have seen her, you know, being promoted very, very quickly. And she apparently looked right at me and I looked right at her, but I was totally clueless myself. I was thinking about my presentation, which I was taking the elevator up to. And she left the company a month later and I found out the reason is, is that she said I didn't like her. And I was like, wait, she's like my favorite person. How did that happen? And, you know, they gave, came up the example of I was on the elevator. I looked at her and she smiled at me and I didn't smile back and I didn't say hello. And so just one thing is just recognize sometimes, uh, you know, like all humans, um, you were sometimes a little clueless, and I certainly was that day, and I was so heartbroken about that. But, you know, I totally sent the wrong message. So for leaders listening, make sure you know who's around you. Um, so that's that's one thing. And so um, on um, – I'm sorry, come back with the folks of the question so I can – Well, the – 
this and, and just to piggyback on this, the, I, I do want to reinforce what Mark just said. Like, don't make it up, right? So some a leader looked at you, didn't smile, doesn't mean they hate you. And do not, you know, g- let your mind spin on things that really aren't reality. So just catch yourself when you do that. Um, uh, getting back to the, you know, how people, how do you continue to get the constructive input and feedback to help you grow, right? And I think it's just, it's just genuinely hard for people to say, hey, boss, you know, it would be nice if you do this, you know? So how did you create an easy way for people to just keep giving you the kinds of input you needed to be a better leader? Right. So, so it's very important to set the tone at the top. And and again, I'm, I'm going back to city Uh, in the days I was there, it was known as very backstabbing culture. Like people would, executives would come in to their boss and tell on their peer <laughs> that, you know, Molly's doing this or Molly's doing that. And right from the get-go, when I took over the bank, I said to everybody, look, we're not, th- this, this um, not supporting your peer doesn't work for me. And it's not going to be the culture of this division within Citigroup. And and I, I said, I want to make it very clear. If one of you comes in and is telling me about one of your peers and it's not positive, I'm going to stop the meeting and I'm going to call that person and invite them in. And so everybody's like, you know, you never listen half the time. People are like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, my one head of ops had walked in and Okay, Mark, I have to talk to you. Shut the door and started talking about the marketing exec. I said, what? Hold on. How'd, how'd your conversation go with her? Well, I, I didn't have a conversation with her about this. I'm like, okay, do you want to have that first or you want me to call her in? He's like, no, 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 just listen. I just want to tell you just two minutes. I said, hold on. Picked up the phone. Molly, can you come in, please? <laughs> <laughs> said, um, you know, John has something he wanted to share with me and, and you about your behavior. You know, John, go ahead. <laughs> and so after I did that three, four, five times, not only did my direct reports get it, but it went down in their organizations and they realized you are going to be not rewarded for telling on your peer you are going to be ostracized. You're going to be not part of the in-group because you're not being genuine. You're not being kind. You're not being real. And you're being um, a small person. And that is not good for the organization. It's not good for your peers. And it's especially not good for you. I love this because people like to say that, uh, oh, it's a culture. Culture shift takes a long time. And I think, Mark, your example is, oh, no, no, it can be pretty overnight. It can, <laughs> absolutely. So, it can be absolutely yeah. overnight. And this is just how it rolls to this. And this is just this gorgeous example of transparency. Oh, there's something on your mind that, that's bothering you. Let, let's talk it out. <laughs> and so, yeah. And the other, quick, the other quick thing is, I'll just say, the other way I achieve that is I never want yes people. I don't want people who are gadflies who are just going to be finding the wrong and everything. But I always try to hire people with different skills than me 
I don't want people who look sound and feel like me. And I'm not talking about gender, race or anything. I'm talking about competency. And But gender and race is also very important. Like, I don't see any of that. I, I don't care, you know, it, what your race is, what your gender is. Uh, I'm blind to that. I But I like to have, you will ultimately get a very diverse group in the de- definition of today's diversity. If you just hire the best people and you don't see that, right? So, you know, you will find that you're going to get an incredible team if you have complementary skills, and the last thing you want are yes people on your team. You want people to think for themselves and you encourage them to challenge it. And the final thing is you have to listen to this famous uh, expert on communication, Molly Chang, and you make sure that you listen to everybody in the room, make sure everybody in the room has their time to speak. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And this is the thing about these groups that have the complement of skills, the complement of ways that grew up and all. And the challenge for those groups is that you do need to be more skillful, right? So Mark, you have an extraordinary ability. I know we've talked about your your grandparents goes way back, right? Honing listening skills, honing seeing people for who they are. Um, but when you have you know, a diversity, it takes a higher capability, you have to function at a higher level because it's easier, you know, if I'm cooking with my sister, we don't have to say anything, you know, but if it's with something, someone new, you, you need to be able to, to navigate, uh, learn about each other and navigate um, in different ways. Uh, we could go on and on. I would love to segue because one of the things that, um, you know, saying it skillfully is about being grounded in yourself. And you're such a great example of just a great growth trajectory, right? So really just wonderful experiences. You've had great impacts. But as you started your firm, Mark, I think it'd be great for people to hear just how you thought about it and then what you're doing, why you chose. You're very intentional about it. I think, folks, it's easy to say, oh, so-and-so did all these business schools. He went to these great places. He worked for these great people. It all just kind of happens. And folks, it doesn't. It takes intention to create the path that you can be living the dream. So Mark, if you'd just share some thoughts on that, I'd be really grateful. Sure, well, my firm, Montpelier Ventures, um, we basically do three things. So one is we do M&A for very small companies, well, small in the M&A world, 15 million in revenue to up to 100 million in revenue. But I'd say the sweet spot is, you know, from 25 to, 60 million. Um, then we, I do coaching of CEOs and I, and I also like to target uh, partners in uh, private equity venture firms uh, to help share with them how to work with CEOs. And then I do board work and uh, a combination of nonprofit boards and for-profit boards. But the, the way I developed what I do today is one with M&A. I never was a big fan um, of many M&A firms. Some, are, some people are, were amazing, but for the most part, I didn't like that they had not run companies. They were really good at understanding the numbers, but they weren't, not only were they not good at understanding how the business operated, but they didn't really care. And I think that's really important when you're working with a business. And the other thing I realized having 
participated in a bunch of um, acquisitions is these smaller companies kind of get eaten alive. You know, they don't get the best deal when a big acquirer comes in. And so like last year, the four companies I sold, none of the CEOs had gone to college. They each built great businesses. They were authentic. They were real. Uh, they had great leadership capabilities, but they had just bootstrapped these businesses at a young age and uh, grown them. And I really like to work with them and help them to sell their companies for what they're worth. So I like to say that I help people um, go from an maybe okay retirement to an amazing retirement because in each of my deals last year, the worst was I got three times more than what the initial offer had come in at. And in the best, I got five times more. And so I really love doing that. So uh, I've, I'm not the kind of person who's ever going to retire. I tried that at 44 and I sat on a bunch of boards and I knew when I bought a pair of uh, Prada uh, ugly comfort shoes with a couple other 80 year olds on the board. I, I have, that was it. I didn't want to do that. So, <laughs> uh, so part of my firm is I want to be active. I'm not the guy who wants to sit down on the golf course all the time. And so this is one of the things I love to do. And then I ended up doing coaching because of Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, I, I won't bore you with all the details, but you know, we all know that he's, um, widely regarded as the best executive coach in the world. And uh, he encouraged me to do it because he said, well, you've run stuff. And a lot of coaches have never run anything. And for a particular group like CEOs or say partners of private equity firms who are working with CEOs, they sometimes need, um, if it's not specifically a behavior issue like stakeholder-centered coaching that Marshall does, they sometimes need and want somebody who's kind of been been there and done that. And as one CEO said, it's kind of like, you know, you can, uh, you can learn how to skydive, which is kind of like being a CEO, by reading a book and going up, jumping out of a plane. Or you can go up in a plane with someone who has read a lot of books and gone up in a lot of planes and watched, you know, you jump out. Or you can go up in a plane with somebody who has read a lot of books and been jumping out of planes for 30 years and strap yourself to them. So that's kind of the way I like to think of my coaching is I, you know, we, I strap on together. Uh, if you think of the parachute example uh, with the CEOs and we jump out together and we deal with issues like road board members, acquisitions, um, you know, uh, issues with executives, um, uh, crisis situations, you know, all kinds of things like that. Oh, what a gift. I, I, I'm so smiley that you're doing something you love so much. If you just think about it in a word or two or phrase, you know, what, what is it that you get out of it? Well, I get a tremendous amount. So in, in just a word or two, yeah. uh, I get, I get, a you know, satisfaction. Um, I feel like that I'm really helping, uh, people and what what I'm doing is fulfilling a need that I didn't realize I had 
when I was a CEO um, that I needed a great coach. I needed somebody who'd been around the block. I was always a little too much. I don't need anybody. I can do it myself. Not, not about the, my management team, but about the actual being the CEO. And, you know, I had some, you know, fights with board members. I had, uh, you know, issues with uh, during capital raises. And boy, would have been really, really nice to, to have somebody who could confidentially walk me through that. So I kind of feel like I'm fulfilling a need that I had. And common sense tells me that every other CEO has to. Ah, I love it. Uh, the final thing I'll just ask, because we're always modeling growth, is there a growth area or two that you'll share with listeners that you're working on? Um, yeah, I think I, I need to do a better job of, I, I've been in, I, I, I say a little selfish in that my life, I, you know, after working really, really, really hard for 35 years. So I just want to say I spent at least 25 years working 80 hour weeks. So it's not like I've gotten to a position where I'm pretty comfortable without really putting in the work I have. I feel like I'm not maybe giving enough. Um, I do. My wife and I did start a charitable uh, fund. And so we do give that way. But I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to develop more around marketing, getting my services out there. I feel like I need to serve more clients. Um, and I, I get just comfortable not having a gigantic number. <laughs> Mark, I, uh, you, you are so inspiring to me. So I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us uh, an inside look into some of the tough talks from the top. Um, your leadership wisdoms. I am grateful personally for your continued support. You're an epic enthusiast for say it skillfully. Totally part of the solution. Um, and you know where to reach me if I can ever be helpful for you. I'm, I'm cheering for you all the way. Um, and you take good care, my friend. Thank you, Molly. I really appreciate the chance to be on your show again. And uh, I, I just have to say it is my number one favorite podcast. So thank you. Uh, it's always exciting to be on uh, with a show that you listen to all the time. So thank you. That's great. And we will look forward to seeing you later this month for sure. Absolutely. I can't wait. Okay. You take good care. Okay. We, we're going to wrap and um, I, we have to do this on behalf of Mark's uh, grandmother uh, when he asked, what's the most important thing about being a CEO? And she replied, be real, be kind, and genuinely care about people. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Mark's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data 
and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.